0: Okay, we are going to continue in our series um, in Luke, we're in Luke 20 today, so if you want to start turning there, um, and we've um, entitled uh, our series in Luke, um, Jesus, humanity's only hope, humanity's only hope. Humani- Jesus as humanity's only hope Amen. and um, you know one of the things I guess I was recently came back to me even as I was um, teaching throughout the week and uh, I remind us now you know that you know it's one thing for us to go through the word and we're reading it and reading it in the language that we understand but our real desire here is that the word goes through you you know, that in a sense, the Spirit of God that allowed these words to come, that we're not merely controlling it through our language, but that actually the author, behind the author, starts to communicate with you and starts to say these things are alive and speaks to you as well through them. So we're in a, you know, we're in a chapter today that really, in a sense, is exploring the theme of authority exploring the theme of authority, and Jesus' claim to it. Now, it's interesting because um, throughout the week, I was in a, was, again, as you're pondering these things, and you've, all these things, especially when, you, you're, you're, when the subject is in your mind so much, things that you see and you pick up as you're watching maybe um, you know, various shows come at you. And one of the things that did come at me that kind of made me think and propel myself into even what, what I will do today was one particular journalist and writer who was writing about the state of the current trajectory of the West, with its belief that progress is re- what progress looks like for us now and what most people believe is more and more freedom. More and more freedom, the, the freer that you make the society, the better it will be. And that is the 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 mark of progress. And we're obviously starting. we we see obviously, ways in which that is not true. And this is what this particular um, I I could say was an ex feminist writer, but believe she's a true feminist was trying to say is that actually, um, we're now moving into a stage where the benefits to women are no longer benefiting women anymore. You know, and nothing tells that more, isn't it? When Things like, you know, the threats of um, trans women now, or trans men, quote unquote, um, competing in women's sports and align in what women can accomplish. And so that's the problem is that you're actually starting to see that that is diminishing and obviously the role of the home and the and, and wives and, being a wife and being a mother, all these things are coming under effect and that's what she was saying. But one of the things that you actually find is also true is that What happens in a world where we're trying to create more and more freedoms is that we have to have more and more of authority. Those freedoms have to be protected by something. And what you find is that actually you're getting more and more authority. You cannot escape that issue of authority. People now tell you that certain things you have to believe and certain things you can't believe anymore, whether you want to or not. And that's where the authority comes in. And so that's why this I think this subject is really important, because in many ways, you cannot escape the issue of authority. Now, one of the things I was thinking of as I was going through this was two songs, two, two songs that have two different visions of what that would look like. The first one was John Lennon's Imagine, isn't it? And it's interesting that no futurist can imagine a world and ever dared to write a world in which John Lennon envisions where there is no countries, there's no borders. In fact, it's pure Eden. Everyone's running around, they're doing whatever they want to do. There's no countries, there's no leaders, because there's no countries, but no one manages that. Whether you're looking at a world like Mad Max, you know, you've got warlords, you've got people, you've got open spaces to do, but you've got warlords who are hoarding all the resources. And you've got to go through them if you want to get water or food or you've got the 1984 vision of states, or you've got um, the brave new world version where everyone is living in pleasure, but at the cost of a government that gives you something. There is no escaping the issue of authority. You know, and again, the other song that I was thinking of was Bob Dylan's You Gotta Serve Somebody. You know, and that's it. There's, there's no escaping it. And I think that's why this particular theme of authority is important, because wherever you go, the question that remains, the, the question that remains is whose law and whose authority are you going to follow? And as we go through our text today, again, allow that to go through you and examine you as we do so. What I want to do is I want to pray and I want to kind of go section by section, and so please follow me as we do. So let's um, let's pray. Father, we are thankful today for your word. We're thankful for this fellowship. It was so it's so beautiful, Lord. Again, seeing Lord um, how we communicate, how fellowship was happening, Lord. It felt um, really hard to say stop. Let's get onto the word. But again, Lord, we prayed it as. I do what I have to do, I speak your word, Lord, that we can continue to talk and encourage one another and, and greet one another and, and bless one another in the Lord, Lord. And so we're thankful for that. And, and maybe even what we do today, what we understand about authority, who knows, Lord, how this will play into our lives and to um, maybe bring some clarity to something we've been recently going through or something that we've been wrestling for a while with, Lord, or even God, things we're about to, occur, go, to go through, Lord. Hopefully, Lord, this text meets us in one way or another, um, and you get to speak clearly to us, the eh, Lord, of what you want to do in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for this series. Thank you for what you're teaching us. And may the eh, Lord, your spirit, truly reign mm. in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, let's go to the first section um, of Luke 20, and we're going to be in 1 to 8. 1 to 8. I've um, titled today, um, so one of the things I thought was quite handy today, I've entitled titled today Apologetics 101. What Jesus, I believe, is doing for us here is teaching us. And so, what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of go through each section and kind of highlight how apologetics is kind of being used and how we might, again, incorporate it into our own um, defense for the faith as well. So, again, bear that in mind as I go through the text. So, Start at verse one, reading in the ESV. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven from man and they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven he will say why did you not believe him but if we say from man all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet so they answered that they did not know where it came from and Jesus said to them neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things you know So one of the things I wanted to start with is is, it is often hard to draw lines between the chapters in the Bible, you know, and no doubt if you've ever kind of come to a a commentary, um, especially multiple commentaries on one particular chapter, you'll find that um, normally people disagree where the where a new subject ends and a new you know, and another subject begins. And so often we say, Well, this is a probably not a great place to draw a line because this section in many ways is connected to what happened in the last section, you know, about the authority that Jesus went in and obviously disrupted the whole of the buying and selling in the temple. And to some extent, this was burning in the in the religious leaders hearts about well, why is he doing this? Who gives him the right to do that? And so in that sense, this section leads into that. Now, what I want to say is that so often when we see these divisions, what I believe, you know, and this is me and my humble self say, commentators and, and and, and others don't necessarily give credence to, is the ability for the writers to rewrite it in such a way that they are doing more than they realise, i.e. what I believe is happening In these sections, and why so often people debate where the division is, is that the writer is writing with a skill that is like a DJ. Where they fade one song in to another song using the same beat of the last song. And that's what so often people miss. Is that that it's hard to draw the, the hard lines between the chapters because to some extent, there's way more skill going on than people tend to give an ancient writer credit for. And so in many ways we go, well, well, well I will draw the line here and this is one of the things I said, you don't have to draw the line anywhere. Because these chapters weren't in there anyway. What we're finding is that Luke is skillfully bringing this issue of authority and fading in and faded out of the last issue, which is Jesus challenging the authority of the religious leaders who he believed were misusing the temple. Mm-hmm. And we find that actually, when we come to the end of this section as well, that we find the same thing is happening because everybody says, well, that section obviously about the scribes going in their, 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 their robes really belongs to the next section, but really it's a, the issue is actually married to this one. And what we find is what we call a a a, a pyrocopy, where you've got a section that is kind of bracketed, and it fades in and it fades out. So as we think about that, let's not think about, let's not try to do these things and think, well, this really actually belongs to what we do. Actually, it belongs in both. And so we get to fade in. And so we've got to keep in mind what we were learning last week about the temple being Uh, the temple system being disrupted and Jesus obviously having issue with what they were doing now the question is is brought to them so what authority do you do these things and so now Jesus in, in himself raises the question back and in a sense, answers, uh, you, wants to answer their question with another question. And that is obviously a legitimate thing to do when you think about apologetics. So often we need to kind of nuance the question and find out, well, what do you mean? And so one of the things that Jesus does that actually raising the ministry of John was actually quite impertinent to Jesus, own position, because it was John who identified him as the Lamb of God. So in many ways, him saying, let's see what John had. Let's see what you think about John, because most people would have been aware that John had obviously in his own way commissioned Jesus' ministry. So the question is related. So basically you don't believe in my authority. All right, let's go to John's. What do you make of it? Well, they don't know what to do they're stuck because what you find is that the people are in mind and this is how this section connects to the last section they they, they want to be in the heart of the community they're the elites who, who, who in a sense capture the the, the the people and do whatever the people want them to do and so they in a sense John has captured the way that they have been captured by the community around it. And the general consensus was that John was a good man and died a martyr. And so in a sense, besmirching his name was not gonna help them. And so the issue was that we need to avoid answering this question because one, we don't believe John was, was, was an authority from God, but the people do. And we love the people as much as we want them to love us. So that's the issue. And Jesus ends this section by looking at the fact that they love themselves and they want the people to love them too. What's our first lesson in apologetics? Well, our first lesson in apologetics from this section is that, you know what? People don't really have real arguments against Christianity. They take what they believe um, is our illegitimate authority and to some extent, argue against what they believe is basically common, what they believe is their own uh, prejudice against us. And so it's understanding that prejudice and really what, we do, what Jesus is doing is lifting, that pre- lifting the veil on that prejudice. So therefore, we, are got, we, we need to a challenge the sceptics, who have no real love for the truth. No. That's the problem. They can't answer because in a sense, you, you should be able to tell the truth, and they can't tell the truth. And so often when you start to um, ask people about where this is because again, when you know, let me give you an example of this, um, and a, a, a particular interview, I mean, there was numerous politicians, but in particular, the one when um, Nicola Sturgeon was asked what, um, what a woman was. And then all of a sudden, there's an issue of truth there, right? It should be one. But because you know that the people are divided on the issue, she's trying to please both both parties. And she can't quite give her a, a, a true answer. Now numerous other politicians have been in the same situation, when they've asked the same question. But that's what you find is that actually, these people are not in a quest for truth. It's just they just love what people to love them. And so this is what Jesus exposed, is that these people have no love for the truth. Let's move to our next section. Um, Let's go to chapter verse 9. The parable of the wicked tenants. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give to him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him and they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. <clears throat> I've kind of labeled this one, and this is uh, something that's been on my mind, for ages, so I'm quite excited about being able to kind of you know, use it now. Off, off, copyright infringement and the human quest for ultimate autonomy. Now, one of the things I've, you know, there's many ways in which to teach this text, and I've taught it many other ways, which obviously get to the core of what it is. But what has been, what has been on my mind, especially as I think of this particular parable in this particular um, gospel is that ultimately, God gives unbelievers on the non payment of royalties. Ultimately, that's what, that, that's what basically undoes us. For all the things that we say, well, I've cheated, I've done all this and all the rest of it. When it comes to God and the 10 Commandments, what we get is that you haven't actually given God what he's due and that's what we find is that these, these servants are coming and saying, give back to me what is mine. Now I know that you might be saying a copyright infringement would be very highly speculative, Richard. You know, I I would need to hear you a bit more on that, but I believe that this parable bears this out. Jesus told this parable in light of the previous engagement, with the chief cry. So in other words, this is an escalation of the issue of authority. So now Jesus is not saying, so now Jesus is going to this place where he's now going to demonstrate that his authority comes even beyond John. He is now connected to the owner. So he's the ultimate authority and not merely one who is endorsed by somebody else. In that sense, John endorses Jesus, but ultimately, John is still looking to Jesus to be his saviour too. Even amongst the most powerful people in history, there, are some, there is some form of accountability. And this is also true. This is that whole theme of that no matter how free a person looks, they are still bound by somebody. You know, presidents and prime ministers, we might look at them, oh, they've got so much power, but they must answer to the people, one way or another. Look at the top executives, even the people like Elon Musk and and Bill Gates, they still have to to answer to the shareholders. Yeah. (laughs) They still have to, you know, they can't do whatever they want to do. They are powerful, but they're not powerful to the point where they get to decide how they do whatever they want to do. But Jesus' claim is as an owner. He is the son, he is the heir. He will inherit this. In other words, what is the father's is mine. And this is exactly when you go to the Gospel of John, his our argument. What is the father's is mine because that is the whole concept of the Trinity. It's that we all own this together. And we look at sons, especially sons of, of great estates, to look at them as as being at least the future owner, if not the owner in principle, when we look at what they're if it's their parents that own uh, this fortune or whatever it is, we see them as owners as well. The wicked desire of the tenants is to make out that they owe nothing to the owner. I don't owe you anything. Whether it's because well, I've done all the hard graft, you know, this is the workers arising, the power of the worker. We don't owe you anything. You know, we own the means of production, that kind of argument. Who knows what's going on in their mind? And they view, you know, but really, actually, what it is, is about these religious leaders still, because it's coming to them. And, they view, and, the, and these religious leaders are what you would call gatekeepers. They're the gatekeepers to the various um, offices and the various, um, the, the, the various runnings of the state. You have to go through them in order to get to that. And Jesus is coming as a higher authority. And these gatekeepers are denying him the access to that which is his. We don't owe you anything. In other words, they, they don't see themselves. You know, one of the things that, I, you know, when I teach through first Samuel. This is one of the things that is quite unique about David, in contrast to Saul when he was the king. David always saw Jesus, um, well, Jesus God, as the king of Israel. And he calls himself really the Prince of Israel. And that's that whole idea of he realizes that as a gatekeeper, he is not the ultimate authority. And actually, when you read through the text, those subtleties we can easily ignore is that he identifies himself as a prince within Israel, even though he is labeled the king, because he ultimately sees God as the king of Israel. I'm just here ruling as he would have me rule. And that's what these gatekeepers ought to have understood, what these elites, religious elites should have understood. Is that they are merely gatekeepers to the kingdom of God and ought to give to God what is due to him. Their assumption is that anyone operating outside of their purview is illegitimate. In other words, if we haven't endorsed you, you're not endorsed. If we have not given you the authority to do what you've done, you've got no authority. But Jesus is not coming. This parable is there to demonstrate I am coming from the, from the power that you say you follow. But they don't follow it because they don't recognize Jesus' legitimacy to take the position he can. They won't recognise the authority of God. And the servants would, have. you know, let me not do that. You know, he rounds off this parable by describing the removal of those religious elites. So it, it ends up with this thing where it almost like, again, it's, it's, it kind of rose from parable into prophecy in many ways. And it would say that what happens through the, you know, and this happens through the destruction that he will now, he says, what will happen to those leaders? He said, he will remove them. Now, we believe that this is prophetic because this is exactly what happens with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is exactly what Jesus prophesies will happen. And obviously the next chapter will will lead into that way more and lean into that whole idea of how that removal will happen. And the establishment of a new covenant community is now going to take place that is centered around him. So this is what this picture of the cornerstone is, is that he will now set up a new community where people will pay him the homage that he is due. So therefore, because this old regime will not acknowledge him, a new regime needs to be put in place and he will become a cornerstone to that new regime. The illustration of Christ being a rock also is quite a stark one, isn't it? It lays out this striking picture of Christ's authority. Fall on him, you know, when you think about this, isn't it? When you think about a mountain, and you have to kind of contrast. I mean, it's a hard contrast, but here it is. Fall on it or have it fall on you. And you're kind of thinking, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's quite interesting that the picture is there is that, yeah, if I fall on this mountain, I'm gonna probably break a leg and arm, maybe even my back, but I will be alive. The picture of the rock or the mountain now falling on you is that I can't survive that. And that's the picture is that, and that's again, a picture of authority. One way or another, you're gonna to have to submit to me. And it's either submit to me broken or submit to me crushed. Hopefully we are choosing to submit broken. I'd rather fall and, and, and break a few limbs and have my pride wounded than hold on to my pride and have my life destroyed. In many ways, this is an illustration of Daniel 2. Um, 44 to 45. I will read it because it's helpful because it's that picture of the rock and in a sense it's a development of that same theme from Daniel of the, of, of the mountain of God, the Mount Zion, again what Isaiah speaks of as well. And it says this in, in Daniel 2, 44 to 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. Again, it's that that picture of no human hand is a picture of divine authority. Nobody is given that authority. In other words, the appeal here, even from Daniel's prep, is that it's coming directly from God. No hand has been laid upon it. And that's why when you were setting up a, an, an altar in the Old Testament, again, this is one of those little teaching notes, when it says, you shall not make an altar which you've laid your, which you've chiseled. Because it says, just, just lay an altar on something you find in the earth as I made it. Without you tampering with it, without you adding your, your, your extra bits to it, just worship me as you find without hand. Just as on God's terms. And that's that picture here with so with no hand. And then it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. This is the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And a great God was made known to the king what shall be after the great the great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And this is exactly where that dream is leading to, what Jesus is now saying. I am that new mountain that is coming. My kingdom shall not be removed. Fall on me, and you'll be saved. Get in my way and you will be crushed. That's the terms. Just like in the days of Moses, choose life or choose death. But either one way, evil way, we will enter that kingdom broken. Even Judah itself, or Judea, as it was known in those times, will be crushed in order to make way for the new covenant. Did you realise that? That Judea itself would have to make way for this new kingdom. So what do we learn apologetics-wise? Well, apologetics-wise, we learn that contrary to the view of the postmodern mind that assumes that we owe nothing to anyone but ourselves is flawed. In the West, copyright infringement is frowned upon, and we can argue that from this, that we have likewise taken the intellectual property of God and treated it like our own. However, this is leading to a day of judgment when we must give an account for our breach of God's rights. You know, one of the things that I've... um, I remember when we were teaching back in the day when we were doing our Bible studies... um, Genesis there. And and one of the things I wanted us to kind of know where the Bible begins, this whole issue of of autonomy and ownership is that when we read the Genesis, Genesis one, God created the world, we have, he has the copyright claims to our lives. And, you know, so often when we want to teach ethically, about God, You know, we can easily focus on how we treat each other. But when you realise it, you know, so often we do so by skipping over at least the first three commandments where really it's actually to do with God. You know, a true ethical code, a true moral code has to have something to do with God because that's in the commandments too. And how we treat God as the creator and worthy of our worship is important that's an ethical issue where you choose to not do so you're no different in the eyes of God's law than a murderer we need that high view of Scripture at least when it comes to the commandment and recover this whole idea of what I do with God matters It is an ethical issue to be, as it were, this proud uh, person who lives this great life, who does no harm to nobody else, but does not acknowledge God like these wicked tenants do. We are, in that sense, overriding or trying to override God's intellectual copyright over our life. He owns us. And if you don't leave Genesis 1 with that belief in your mind, then you've not understood Genesis 1. We owe him everything. Genesis 1 now leads us to Exodus 20. He has a legitimate claim to our lives. And when we do our apologetics, we need people to understand that. You you do not have this inalienable right to yourself to do as you please, you have a freedom in God and then freedom, and in in that sense, that freedom is true freedom in God. Let's move on to 19. So paying taxes to Caesar. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, no doubt for what he just said just before. For they perceived that they had told this parallel against them, but they feared the people. Again, there's that fear of the people showing up again, which we need to know. It's always in the face that, that I need to look good in front of the people. So they watched him and sent spies and pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something. He said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. There's that issue of authority again. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God, buttering him up. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Don't treat current issues as primary issues. That's the kind of big theme here. The issues of the Judeans having to pay a tribute tax to to Rome was a hot topic in the days of Jesus. So this was a current affairs topic. This was a big deal, and so to some extent, it wasn't a kind of a question out of the blue. It was one of those questions that everybody was asking. Even the coin with the image of the emperor was an issue for religious Jews, so much so that an alternate coin was created for Jews in which the emperor's image was not on there. And that was a compromise by Rome as an interesting fact, isn't it? That an alternative view, because they had this high view of of not having images of people on coins or on anything that Rome accommodated this 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 aspect of their culture. This makes it somewhat remarkable that for such a religious gathering, who would be opposed to foreign rule, you would think that a coin with the emperor's head could be produced when the alternative was available. So when he asks for a coin, the people who seemingly might have an issue with Rome's rule over um, Judea, they produced the coin that was blasphemous to have. There are a few ways you can lead with this particular passage in order to draw out the core of Jesus' teaching. But um, Jesus here, I think, is seemingly... they're trying to put Jesus into a way where obviously he he can't win. And so in a sense, it's like the reverse of his question about john to them, and they think that they've caught him on on a similar grounds. If he says he will, you should pay it, it would isolate the growing group of zealots in Judea from him he says don't pay the tax he runs the issue of Rome labelling him a rebel the challenges are seeking an either or answer yes or no will be great but Jesus gives what we call in in um, logical reasoning a both and answer a both and basically means you incorporate two things that are, are equally true but you you can't in a sense break the tension between them because to do so would be to, in a sense, end up at a false answer. So you need to keep those things in tension because it's not an either or answer. This is not a weaselly middle answer. I'm weaseling out and and, and, and in that sense, Jesus is, 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 is frightened to kind of comment on the current issue of the day. He's really actually expanding it to the bigger issue, And in many sense, this is the same issue of authority being scaled up to the issue of how does authority work with, well, if I'm loyal to God, what does that loyalty look like to the state? That's the issue. And so it's that same issue of authority. How much authority do we give to God in contrast to Caesar? So this is the issue that's lurking in the background. How can we be faithful to God and settle for Roman rule? And even more so, be forced to pay the tribute that acknowledges. And that's a, that was kind of the issue as well. The tribute was, was in that way, was conceding that Rome ruled over you. So it wasn't just a regular tax. It was a tax where you acknowledged his authority. And that's why the issue was contentious. So do we, by affirming Rome, by paying this tax, does that mean we disaffirm God? What needs to be noted here is that there are times when this concern will actually be true, as we see in the book of Revelation. So this is not a clear-cut answer where when you think about it, it's like, well, we always have to, in many ways, concede to the state. In Revelation, we see that there are times when what the, the state wants, we can't give it. Now, this is illustrated again when we look in the book of Daniel, because we find that in Daniel 3, the Hebrews refused to worship at the state's direction. I cannot give that. That's what belongs to God. And so we ought not to confuse the issue. This passage and Romans 13 do not absolutize the state's power. We need to understand that. It's not this whole idea that the state can never be wrong to the degree that whatever it asks for should be given. This this passage rightly invites us to consider what belongs to God and what belongs to the state. Lest we offer to the state what rightly belongs to God, such as our reverential loyalty, and offer to God what rightly belongs to the state, such as our placid obedience. Placid obedience, that, you know what? Low energy, fair enough if you want it. you You know, what's my... What a bill, what's my council tax bill? Yeah, cool, Pfft. dispassionately give. We can give that to God in such a way that we're like, well, I just come to church, yeah, I just pay my tithes, just sit, endure the sermon, you know, endure the fellowship, go home, done my part. That's offering to God what you really ought to be offering to the state. As opposed to where we've got high energy in, in 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 the current issues of the day. Yeah, man, what do you think about this? And all, and and our current affairs and our, our excitement in politics is up there. It's like, it's, it's high energy, and then when it comes to the Word of God, the energy is just zoom right the way down. I'm oh, and you wonder why people are powerless. Mm. That's the issue. We're so, we're so into the current affairs. What do we learn apologetics wise here? Well, there's a note of warning here for us. Well, as, <laughs> while debating the current issues, we are tempted to consider people on the opposing side of our perspective to be on the wrong side of God. So just like these people would have thought that if Jesus, Jesus is gonna get on the wrong side of somebody And so often, as we find in our current politics, it's so polarizing that we we kind of pick a side that we believe that is the right side. And even to some extent, we believe that God is on as well, that anybody on the opposing side is demonized. This recently came up, you know, and this again is what we've got to be honest. Brexit, COVID, Black Lives Matter, all these things divided people. Do we pay do we pay tribute to Brexit do we pay you know you know if you're a Brexiteer are you really for God <laughs> <laughs> COVID again likewise so often we need to think these things through do we are we really rendering to these people the thing is this just one of those things where wherever you sit just do what you need to do Jesus says that there are times where do as your own conscience leads you to do It's not a god issue if you're on the other side well you know what I don't support black lives matter fair enough if I do fair enough but render to God what is God's let that be a lower energy issue for you than the whole issue of your worshiping God and the problem is I see with so many people who have come out the other side of these things is that the energy in those issues are still so hot and their energy for God is so low. You know, looking back at this current example, and this is the problem as well, is because all these things fade. You know, this whole issue of paying the tax or, or, or paying the tax within 40 years it will no longer be an issue Jerusalem won't even be there anymore so it's like we're, we're you're, you're making this thing like as if it's a primary issue and and in 40 years time no one will be paying the tax and that's why when we get caught up in these things a good apologetics Teach us, you know what? Do not allow yourself to be sidelined by current issues. Keep people focused on the fact that it's what you do with God that matters. Be, Be low energy on the current affairs, high energy on God and the kingdom to come. 27 to 40, let's turn there please. There came to him some Sadducees those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and, and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died and in the, in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? for the seven had her as wife. As a wife. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac the God and the God of, of Jacob now he is not God of the dead but of the living for all live to him then some of the scribes answered teacher you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question so this section I've labeled dealing with liberals you know, the way the Sadducees present the problem is, is to make it look like an ethical issue. So they're not like, oh, we're, you know, so on the surface, they're really questioning the resurrection. But what they're doing is they're presenting an ethical issue of, of, well, who's the wife could to be? Who's, who's, who's legitimately married to her. And in that sense, it's kind of a, it's kind of backwards trying to show how illogical the resurrection is. Because in that, a, it, the, 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 the floor is that there's a moral issue that arises and so if, you're, if, you, if, if your resurrection and this resurrection that you like to preach about is so true, how about, how's, how's all these moral issues gonna be up resolved? And the issue of marriage obviously brings this thing up. Whoa, isn't the resurrection silly then? So Jesus deflects the apparent moral dilemma by stating that life in the new heaven and earth is not like life as it is now. So that's the mistake. And we can also make the same mistake by kind of thinking that, well, everything, how life is right now is going to be exactly as it is. In the, it's just, we kind of resurrected, you know, we kind of spruce up all the buildings that got destroyed. And then um, we're, we, we kind of, it's life as usual. Someone takes over the Starbucks franchise, yeah, I'm going to run that now. You know, it's all the same. But First Corinthians 15, in particular, I read from 42 to 44, doesn't allow us to think that way. Paul says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So he's, 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 he's saying that we can't really make the comparison. We are moving forward, we are not in a sense stagnant. It's not just the same thing, but just in, different, in a different way, in a different time. You know, it's hard to imagine what can replace marriage as a form of the closest union a person can have, yet we are invited to believe that such a union can indeed be transcended. You know, it's true, isn't it? When we think about that, is this, we, we are, so much is left to our imagination and we ought to allow our imaginations to run wild when we think about the possibilities of what a new heaven and a new earth would look like. When you think about the closeness where, to, where you get to a point where the closeness of, of seeing a risen spouse will be so much so that your closeness is equal to everybody. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's what we're tempted to believe that the uniqueness and and, and this whole idea of being able to single out and and say, well, you're going to be my special friend, you're going to be my special companion, could somehow be transcended. We're invited to believe that there's a closeness to humanity in the resurrection that even marriage can't compare to. There's an intimacy in the new resurrection that sex just basically can't top when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of it. It's that close. You know, the Sadducees limited perspective to the Torah. That's what they believe. They believe that the first five were genuine books and Jesus accommodated this. The assumption of this sect is that the covenant was limited to the living, that the covenant community was only those who lived. Jesus shows from the Torah that when Moses encounters Yahweh, he is invited to join his ancestors in the covenant. You see what's going on? That's the thing. Moses isn't kind of like, well, you're, the, you're, you're, you're alive now, and so I guess you've got to take over that. Moses is, is invited to join his ancestors in the covenant that God is enjoying with them. That's the call. That's the issue. And they didn't get this. <coughs> This is an important source for the development of the resurrection as it establishes God's plan of redemption from the beginning of the covenant. That the covenant was, was one that was so strong that even death couldn't separate people from it. That God continued to be your God and acted in faithfulness with you even when you died. Hence to be said to die is to be with the Lord. Apologetics one on one here, what do we learn? It should come as no surprise that skeptics will borrow from the Christian worldview in order to denounce it. The ability to counter such arguments are therefore within the presupp within the false presuppositions of the skeptic. In other words, they question us very much like these Sadducees, thinking, oh yeah, your doesn't your your whole thing mount to a whole hill, hill of beans and they'll show us two texts and say, you know, doesn't this all look illogical? And says, No, you just don't understand the text. Let me clarify the text for you. Because you think you've grasped it, but you haven't. Your presuppositions are wrong. Come correct. 41 to 45 44 sorry. Let's turn there. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This um, again is the issue of authority. I think this section is, you know, this section now cuts to an impassioned response from Jesus. So now Jesus is not responding to anybody else. He is now making his own claim. This is an important section, I think, of scripture, as it would appear that Jesus is speaking to the ill-conceived expectations of Second Temple Judaism about the Messiah. In other words, all their assumptions about what the Messiah will be. Jesus here questions, if David defines the role of his supposed son, If the son is subordinate to his ancestor, why does David speak of his descendant as Lord? That's what Jesus is questioning. The idea here is that the role and the achievements of the Messiah will not be limited to David's own. In other words, they were imagining a Messiah that will come like David, a mere conqueror, a guy who will become as a warrior, who would now just basically rule in that. And so Jesus is questioning that assumption. That's why I say this is important because he is now saying to them, what you expect the Messiah to be is not what you think, because he's not limited to what David was. David could save his people for a time from their external enemies, but could not save them from the sin that lies within them. Therefore, even David needed a greater saviour, a saviour that can save them to the utmost. The reality is that you don't need another David. And David doesn't define the role of the Messiah. So often we can just speak, all oh, we just want is another hero in the fashion of this. And even modern-day Jews, religious Jews, just want another religious leader that can come and, and kind of give them political power and, and, and economic power, and military power. But you need something more than that. You need someone who is able to put the law into your heart. Someone who can save us from ourselves. And so Jesus is rebuking them for thinking that all their thoughts about the Messiah have to be limited to what David does. He's greater than David. He doesn't need David's endorsement. What do we learn apologetics-wise? Well, humanity's greatest need is not material prosperity but they're healing spiritually. The, ide- the ideology of many modern social and political theories that the alleviation of material deprivation will lead to a prosperous and cohesive society. Just remove all the, all, all, all the impositions. give people enough food, give them a place to live, and um, give them a good job, everything will be fine. That's modern social and political theory. And everything will be fine. The theme of one of my favourite movies, Trading Places, as well, isn't it? (laughs) Liberal theology has tried to shortchange the church by stripping Jesus down to a mere moral teacher. We don't really need spiritual, we just need someone to kind of show us how to, to do it right. Don't need someone to save my soul. And much of the unbelieving world are prepared to accept him on these terms as well. Yeah, Jesus, good moral teacher. Yeah, 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 yeah. Send them out great stuff. Excellent. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, all that stuff about death. Ooh, no. We also run the danger of limiting the work of Christ to what we want him to be. Only so much of you, Lord, and no more. That's the danger. Let's run to the end 45 to 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They receive the greater condemnation. In many ways, this section, and this is the word of God, sorry, This is, uh, in a sense, that kind of rounding off and connects to the last section, because in that sense, Jesus is not going to be what the people want them to be. He's going to be what they, need, what, he, what they need him to be. And so often what you find and how he's, this relates to this, next set, this last section is that you've got a religious elite who are prepared to just be whatever they needed them to be. They're at the people's whims. Their authority came from the people. God what Jesus was, was, what God's, was God's gift to them. What these leaders are is people's gifts to themselves. And they were really to be whatever they want to be. Hence I've called this section, Beware of the Virtual Signaling Religious Elite. This section closes out this section, And fades into the beginning of the next and so obviously this is connected to the next and obviously the widow and the and the and the danger of the widows under such a system is now brought to light as we move into chapter 21 but it also relates to this section because he's now comparing his, his authority the authority of these who comes from the people and Jesus authority that comes from heaven At the beginning of the text, Jesus' arrival on the scene has disrupted the religious elite's authority. And he also exposes that while his authority is heavenly and divine, theirs is derived from the people. As long as the population believe they are special, they feel that their authority is legitimate. As long as I've got the the, the will of the people, as long as I've got them in the palm of my hands, I'm all right. The next section will expose the corruption of this system for all its religious pretense. How do we apply all this? As Christians, we need to follow the example of Jesus and prepare to give a defense for the faith. We need to be able to to do what Jesus does in our own time, understanding our current issues as well. We need to follow in his footsteps. And I wanna end with the words of John 15. 18 to 25, and kind of close out on that. So John 15, um, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. the issues that they need to address, we need to be able to tell them clearly. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's a duty for us to make sure that when we represent Christ, we do so not because we want to cause contention, but we want to be able to address the sins that are in this world, show their need for a saviour, show them the fallacy of their own arguments, and show them why they need a saviour, that there has to be a creator, there has to be someone in which we answer to. And this is why this scripture about authority is so important. Who are you going to submit to? Whose law let's submit to Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised, Lord. There is no other authority above you, Lord, and, and as much as, Lord God, we are thankful for the authorities that you've placed in our lives, Lord God, and we do pray for those governments, Lord God, that you have given us, Lord, and, and Father, for even... <sharp inhale> Their ability, dear Lord God, to be able to understand the limits of what they can do and achieve. But yet, Lord God, as a church, we acknowledge that the bigger plan of who really actually stands above all these things. We appeal to your authority. We, we look towards a world, dear Lord God, in which you will unite, Lord. And we realise in many ways the gospel is already in, in, you know, having a power and changing the way the world is. And we'll continue to do so. It will also suffer setbacks seemingly, dear Lord God, where we are, the church looks like it's losing, it's losing its ground, but yet, Father, I believe your word abides. And, Lord God, much like those cycles we see in the book of Acts, dear Lord God, where the church suffers that persecution, it will rise and and, and present itself, dear Lord God, because we fight back, Lord God, and we fight back for your word. We present your word, We, we do the apologetics that Jesus does and disarms the arguments against it. And says look I come from heaven I'm trying to give you the best that God has given and can ever give so as you do so submit yourself so as we go out and we preach as we go out there God and and give testimony to this gospel Lord strengthen us there Lord to do so give us the wisdom Lord God sometimes Lord we don't even need to think as we ought to do, Lord. I want to create a clever argument, Lord, but even just as we pray, Lord, give us that ability to, to talk to that, you know, that person who feels that what we're following is foolishness. Just give us a wise word there, Lord God. Help them to understand, Lord God, they're fighting more with themselves than you actually are with us. Because they believe these things. They know that there is a God, Lord. I believe that Romans 1 is true. And we just need the Lord to strip down the Lord God, those. That, that, that fighting spirit there, eh, Lord God, that we have, this, this unjust claim to authority and uniqueness dear eh, Lord, that I am myself, and I owe nothing but to myself. Lord, we need a saviour there, eh, Lord God, who can cleanse us from within. So, Lord, as we present that Christ to them and, and ourselves there, eh, Lord God, as being a follower of that, Lord, we pray you change this world into the image of your son, in Jesus' name, amen.